The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Clean Coders podcast. This week, we're talking to Daniel Markham. Welcome back, Daniel. Hey, guys. Are you stuck at home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled? Are you wondering where to hear your JavaScript heroes like Amy Knight and Douglas Crockford and Chris Heilman? After the cancellations, I decided to put on a JavaScript conference for you online. I invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you. Go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule. The conference is on May 14th and 15th. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. JSRemoteConf.com. Now, uh, yeah, our, our little technology fun. Uh, you sound like you're on the phone, and that's because you're on the phone. But uh, it's, it's, it's always good to talk. And uh, yeah, we were discussing what we wanted to discuss on this particular episode. You mentioned you have a book coming out, and we decided to talk about naming things. Do you want to just give us the quick rundown on naming? Because it seems like a simple thing. It does, doesn't it? Um, and it, it would seem like you would follow a certain set of rules and you would always have the right names. But yet, I don't know if you've, I know everybody's been there. You look at a piece of code, you see a name, and it might be a very descriptive name like customer service record, but it doesn't mean to you what it meant to the person who chose that name, right? Yep. And so it turns out naming things is uh, is probably the hardest problem in computer science. Like, uh, cache invalidation is tough. Uh, but naming things is especially difficult. And if you understand why it's tough, it actually cascades into a bunch of other cool stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's interesting because it's like, I've heard all kinds of different rules, like name your classes after whatever it does. So it's the doer of thinger, mathinger. I've heard, you know, things like that. But yeah, you know, at the end of the day, I'm looking at it and I'm like, hey, that's not really what it does. Or that's not exactly what it does. Or, oh, that name made me think it did this other thing, you know? And now that I look at it, yeah, the name makes sense, but... So, so there's some really cool stuff going on when you try to choose a variable name or a method name. Of course, the, the general rule is to make it describe what it does. It's a variable or method. You should, the book, the code should read like a novel, not like a detective story, right? You, should, you shouldn't have to figure things out as you go along. Oh, I like that. And uh, that's the general rule. The... Um, it kind of you run into problems when one word means something to one coder and, some, and something else to a different coder. And the reason that happens is the actually turns out quite fascinating. It's the way we use language. And uh, so there are two types of thinking. I'm sure the whole book sort of hinges off these two types. There's dyadic thinking, which is sort of two pieces, and there's triadic thinking, which is three pieces. Okay. Dyadic thinking is like math or science or programming. It's cause and effect. It's signal response. It's the natural way we think of the universe. Uh, however, we're, we're language-using intelligent creatures, so we work triadically, which means that we actually give things names that represent our internal abstractions. By doing that, each of us actually has a different internal abstraction. So if I were to tell you that we're, I'm working on the customer account and you were from a bank, that would mean one thing to you. It would mean something completely different to me if I was from an insurance company. And so you could have the same name, the same signifier, uh, but two different people using the same signifier, and it, it causes all sorts of problems. And it, it's the thing is, that sounds like a sort of a trivial example, but the problem is, is you can work side by side with somebody. And uh, unless you're really tightly coordinating, you can have disagreements over uh, things like 
how to name exception handlers. Um, this is actually one of the reasons that mob programming and pair programming are so great because it forces the people doing it to sort of go through each little step at a time. Interesting. So, yeah. Cause yeah, your brain's kind of synchronized a little bit as you're pairing your mob yes. programming, but yeah, that still doesn't of, necessarily help the person who's fixing your stuff five years later. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, so I wanted to hit one note, then you're exactly right on that, too. The one I wanted to hit was one of the reasons that programming classes kind of don't work as much as they should is the fact, just what we just said, that it's very easy to agree on something at sort of a high level and nod your head and smile like, you should name your variables well. That, that sort of gives you an answer without really giving you an answer. It just says you should name them well. And so everybody can kind of nod and smile, and they all go off coding, and then we're not working side by side or in a group or whatever, and we run the same problem again. So it's not a um, it's not a programming problem as much as sort of a people person to person problem. And then it comes to bite you in a lot of other ways later on. Right. So so how do you solve it? <laughs> <laughs> Simple question, right? <laughs> well, it, the, yeah. See the um, sort of the kicker, and this is really funny because if you've done a lot of TDD, you know this, and if you haven't, it doesn't make any sense to you at all. Is that you can look at a trivial piece of code and not have a damn idea what in hell it does at all. Uh-huh. Uh, you can think you do. It, the code can read one way and can actually do something completely different than it says. And, and making this worse is this could be code you just wrote. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so simply because it, sometimes I think the fact that our code reads like English may be sort of a bug instead of a feature because it leads us to think that we understand what it's doing. And right. TDD, if TDD tells you one thing, it's that uh, you don't know what the heck your code's doing, right? Mm-hmm. And so the way you fix this is you limit the number of symbols that a program has to evaluate at one time. Oh, really? And Yeah. So, so you do that through smaller methods. Uh, you, do that, uh, you can do that through immutable variables, immutable uh, functions. But you have, to, you have to program for the person, not for the computer. And for the person means that you have to be really, really brutal about keeping things as simple as possible. I have a, um, actually a metric that I, I wrote some code to compute this metric as part of the book. It's called a code cognitive load. Okay. And it goes through a method and picks out all the symbols and tells you, you know, maybe you have a four line method. You, you may in, easily end up with 12, 20 different symbols in four lines, mm-hmm. uh, some of which can throw exceptions you didn't realize they could throw. Uh, some may depend on other things. Um, it's really, it's really kind of scary if you think about it. And that's just simple code. If you're doing a lot of sort of nested OO stuff, God knows you know, how many symbols you're pulling in that you don't really know are there. And so you really have to manage the symbol load on the the programmer at the point of maintenance is the only way to sort of fix this long term. But then the next question is how do you manage the symbol load? And then there's a whole sort of thing after that, right? Yeah, I mean, I've seen linters where it's like if you have a method or a function that's longer than four lines or five lines, it'll warn you. I don't think I've ever seen anyone look at the number of symbols. You know, you've also got like cyclomatic complexity, right? Where it's how many branches. But yeah, again, it's it's not the same thing. No, it's not. Um, I guess knowing the number of paths is probably good, especially if you have a different idea than <laughs> the actual number is. Um, but the real thing is when you can start doing operator over- overloading and the fact that English words don't mean exactly the same thing to one code or the next, it can be things like the plus symbol. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, plus it normally does addition, but it also does string concatenation. Um, yep. that has implications on the stack and how big your buffer is. So every uh, things you don't think of could impact and could be a risk for the programmer. So what you're looking at is 
not like how good is your code or how bad is your code. You you want to measure the risk that you don't understand what you're looking at. Fair. I mean, that's that's the real thing with CCL. And um, if you've got 100 symbols in there, even if it only has one or two lines of code, if all those symbols cascade down to 100 or 200, pretty good chance you'd have no idea what's going on there. So when you say symbol, what exactly do you mean? Well, for instance, if we were in OO, we did like a um, customer.account.validate. Mm-hmm. I can look at that method and say it doesn't take any parameters, and I can say, oh, gee, this must validate the customer account. Well, that's actually a very dangerous thing to say because my idea of what the customer account is, what validation is, just walked in the, from the street with me as I sat down and looked at this code. Uh, those same ideas produced by the OO guy who did the, the classes to begin with are guaranteed to be completely different. So if I walk down to customer account.validate and I end up hitting you know, 20 methods downstream, even if those methods are tight and written with TDD so they don't break, doesn't mm-hmm. matter. If I don't understand what's involved with the program, uh, then I'm just sort of flailing away at the computer, kind of hoping that I get the right answer. So again, how do you fix this? Oh, again, it's, it's code cognitive load. I, I think the, um, the key thing is whether or not you're going to be diving down in those symbols or not, right? So if you're, if you're coding sort of close to the metal, uh, where you've got uh, you know, one or two classes and with inheritance perhaps, and uh, after that it's all primitives, then you know you're not going to go too far down. Your, your tree's not going to get but so big. Uh, but if you've got some of these huge graphs, you know, 10, 15 layers deep, you probably want to sort of fix that somehow. And w- one of the things I see, well, especially in JavaScript, but I guess some of the C-sharp guys will do it too, is you know they'll create a, a class library to solve a problem, and then they'll create another class library full of interfaces, and then they'll create even more like you know virtual classes, and you end up with, You'll have like a customer, you know, plain old object with first name, last name, account number that has like four different inheritances and you know, two different interfaces it supports. And right. that, that, that takes a simple idea, the customer, and turns it into a very, very complicated idea. And it's not clear to the program, the maintenance program, that that's what's going on at all. Right. It, it feels like you're talking more about code organization than about naming. Well, yeah, the way you organize your code actually is is sort of the naming. It's kind of a strange thing, but I mean, the, the, you're really when you're programming, you're grouping some sort of bits of uh, Newman code into some sort of groups of things you stick a name on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it is sort of grouping and naming the same thing. I think really my point I'm trying to make is that as you group your 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 symbols into whatever you use for a solution, you have to keep an eye on how much complexity you're adding that the maintenance programmer might not see, right? And so it may be fine to add a few layers of inheritance uh, that everybody knows in the building and there's a standard and you do an onboarding where everybody understands that. Mm -hmm. But unless you've got, unless you've got some sort of metric you're looking at, where's symbol load and also, so a code budget you have to look at, right? So you should only be solving problems with a certain amount of code. And, And the reason that's true is every line of code you write has an potentially infinite cost to you mm-hmm. because you may come back a week later, a year later, you know, six months later. And so if you solve the same problem with a thousand lines or a million lines, I can guarantee you that the million line system is going to be much, much more expensive than the thousand line system. Right. That Even if they're true. both bug free and, and rock solid and all that. So one of the things I suggest as far as fixing this is actually coming up with a budget for the number of lines of code you want to spend in solving your problem. And that forces you to reduce complexity with the symbols. It forces you to think about what's important and what's not important. You know, there's an old thing we call um, 
bad OO programmers. It's architecture astronauts. And the, the idea is that once you start creating a class hierarchy, it's very, very easy to imagine what you might need instead of what you actually need. <laughs> right? so I, I might need serialization at some point. So everything's got serialization. I might need you know this or that and the other thing. And you can go way, way overboard very, very quickly, especially with, with hierarchical classes. It's funny you talk about that. A uh, friend of mine who was uh, a mentor at a couple of different jobs, he had a phrase and it was, Yagni, you ain't going to need it. And the whole point was, yeah, you know, if, if you don't need it now, the odds of you needing it later, <laughs> right? As you yeah. learn more about the system and what it's supposed to do, you know, put it in when you know you have to have it. And if you start developing using TED, that actually sort of enforces Yagni as you go along because you're yeah, only sort enough. of adding the structure you need to do testing. Yeah. So uh, I guess, you know, coming back to this idea of naming, though, and, and I, I know I'm kind of fixated on the idea, but yeah, what makes a good name then for a, a method or a variable or a class? Because I've had the conversation, I remember specifically at my last full-time job, which was still like nine years ago. Or something. Um, he, one of my coworkers, you know, we're sitting down and he had like a four word underscored name for a variable, right? And I'm looking at him going, I don't want to say that. I don't want to read that. And I definitely don't want to type it. So I want something that's just a simple idea. So uh, I'm going to so tell me like why I'm every right. good Every good consultant, I'm going to turn your question around on you and say, okay. What would you need to know about any variable name to know that you understood all of it? And I don't think there is an answer to that, Chuck. If there is, that's true. God bless you. So uh, the, the answer being, there is no, there is no right name. Right? right? We could name. Remember the old basic programs? Oh my God! Back in the eighties, you had X seven and Y six, and you had to only keep like four or five variables in the program. Otherwise, you had no freaking idea at all what the dang thing did. Right? Right. And so the weird thing is, is our brains haven't gotten any more capable, but the systems we code have gotten a hell of a lot more capable. Yeah. Uh, the point in code cognitive load and the point in this naming the triad thing is that you have to realize that um, you, you're, you only have the Mark one brain. And if you work with a team of programmers, like I said, if you have an onboarding system, there's a good chance you can get, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 different sort of rules for names, you know, input out. Remember the old COBOL uh, databases and the old mainframe things that help all caps, variable names, with the underscores between them? No, I'm too young. <laughs> <laughs> that was back in my day, kid. But um, yeah, it, it was, uh, there used to be a lot of standards in uh, big shops where they would you know, have these huge names like you're saying. When I code functionally, this is sort of, maybe this will give you an answer to your question. When I code functionally, I start with like these humongous names, customer records split out by blah, blah, blah. And that's because I'm a moron and I won't be able to remember that when I come back to it. Right. But then as I continue working functionally in that code, I don't need those helpers anymore. And so what, ha what I find is those big names become smaller names. Right. And so I, in a big way, the, the code itself sort of trains the programmer into what the words mean. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, because the... The customer name split out into blah, 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 blah. You know, yeah, it could just, you know, then it becomes first and last name. And then it becomes, you know, yeah. So you, you find a better term for it that more concisely, you know, gives the developer what they need. I saw this beautiful graphic about a week ago. And I'm not going to say from whom because I'm getting ready to trash it. Um, it was actually <laughs> how, how to write, you know, how to write good variable names. 
and it had like the it had like different colors, and it was pretty cool. 3D, it was, it was very nice. Um, but the problem it made was if you actually went down the list, and it sort of had like poor, better, good, very good, excellent. Mm-hmm. And what he was really doing was describing how well you could be aligned with other coders on what the hell you're doing. Right. He he thought he was describing how to do good variable names. The thing is, you're not going to come up with that best variable name unless you're all in rock solid agreement on exactly what the variable does. Yep, fair enough. And so the thing about the thing about variable names is it sort of presents itself as a technology programming problem. It's actually a socialization uh, coding mm-hmm. problem. So I, I have to ask then. Sometimes you see like placeholder variables for iterators and things like that, right? Especially in for yeah. loops. Yeah. So i equals zero is that good or bad? Uh, I think uh, the bobster would probably say bad. Uh, I think the all hail the, uh, the the way it's supposed to be is bad. Um, hell, if I care one way or another. I think the real question is here. I'll give you an example. I'll use I until mm-hmm. I know I'm going to keep the code. If I'm keeping the code, then it's rec, customer record, whatever. Then I'll put some you know, delimiters around it. But even then, you got to figure that whether you use customer record or I or whatever, the assumption is that that scope of that for loop is going to be small enough that you're going to be able to see the top of it while you're down in the middle looking at what happens. Right. I think yeah, I, I like that as a, as a general rule anyway. Because, yeah, if it's three lines and it's I, I mean, yeah, you don't have to do too much work to figure out what I is. Right. And, and, and uh, really, you shouldn't be writing for loops anyway. If you can get away with it, I. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, we have a lot of vector ops now, even in C-sharp and other languages, right? Yep. You, you yeah. don't want to do off by one. If You don't even want to risk off by one if you don't have to. No, it's true. I think that's one of the reasons why even in JavaScript, they recommend you use for each. Yeah. Is because you're. You, it's just, okay, go through all the things in the list instead of um, start with the right index and end with the right index. And the thing with for each is that um, one of the things you can't do if you you probably know this even as a, as you become an intermediate programmer, but you can't do for each with a mutable collection because you don't want the computer or yourself sort of changing what the iterator goes over while you're iterating. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> that's usually considered a bad thing. Um, and but that's actually good because it, what it means is when you're when you step into that for each, you have a pretty good idea of how big the record set is, how you know what's your size of your vector, how much processing you have to do. Um, you may not need any of that at all. But the fact that the computer forces you to use some sort of immutable structure for a while, it plays right into what we were talking about as far as naming code complexity. Nothing's changing underneath your feet as you walk through. And it, oh my God, especially with polymorphism. You, know, you could do for each on a class that has a polymorphic method on it. Somebody could add a new record while you were going, and the, the uh, called out class would actually be doing something completely different than the other ones were doing. So if you, let's say you had a, collection of bank accounts and you're going through to sort of collect all the debits for the bank accounts. Mm-hmm. And uh, each uh, debit class had a uh, subclass called, uh, I don't know, uh, each account had a subclass called debit that would represent uh, the checks outstanding on the account. Well, it could also, but because it's polymorphic, it could also represent sort of uh, stuff they withdraw from the ATM. It could represent anything that the bank considered a uh, sort of a debit at the time. Yep. Uh, and, and when you're walking through that collection, somebody can do massive changes in state to your application with polymorphism in the middle of a for each if you didn't have an immutable collection. They, they could add a new record in that had a, a debit method that sort of changed the outcome and you wouldn't know it. It would just, three bad things can happen, Chuck. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. Uh, I was talking to a company that has a branch here in Utah 
And they asked me the question. They were like, so how would you handle, you know, it was transactions, right? And transactions was basically the superclass for all these other subclasses. And they were all stored in the same database table. And, you know, and so it, it, Rails has a structure called single table inheritance. And so that's what they were doing. But yeah, the behaviors were, you know, varied by the different types of transaction you wound up with. And yeah, and so... Yeah, you, you can definitely wind up with that. And as you're looping through it, especially if you're pulling the data out of the database as you iterate, yeah, I can see you getting into some real problems where, oh, this changed this, and then that changed that, and then it came back around, and then I pulled it out, and it was in a different state, state than it was when I started iterating, and it's not what I needed, so... Yeah, the combination of objects and databases is... I mean, either one of these is very powerful tool you can shoot your foot off with. You get like a nuclear bomb when you put them both together. And it's really good if you know how to use it. It's powerful stuff. I remember one of the first apps I worked on was a, uh, oh my goodness, an object-oriented database that represented a Java application where they had a table called methods and a table called properties. And so you would actually dynamically create these types of Java objects by putting, you know, method, get name. It was, it was like writing a program using the database. <laughs> and the, the the beauty of that was, of course, you could put anything you wanted in at any time. There's no recompiling. It just sort of brought it up. Of course, the danger of that is you could put anything you wanted at any time. Right? Um, yeah. So it was it was really, really, really powerful if you used maybe you know one time a month. But other than that, you could really kill yourself with it. Yeah, it makes sense. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. So I guess the, the, the other part of this is, is a lot of it depends. A lot of it depends on how you communicate about it and, you know, what the, what the kind of what context, I guess, you get out of the code um, and things like that. Is there a way to set up sort of a good guideline or rule for your team to make sure that you're all on the same page when you're talking about these different objects? Maybe a glossary that nobody looks at or something like that. I don't know. I'm a little cynical I, um, here because documentation, in my experience, yeah. never actually gets used. So, no, nah, a better way? No, no, you don't. You don't want a glossary. Matter of fact, I think this is one of these problems that the more words you throw at it, the worse the problem gets. So, the problem exists because we've stuck too many English words in the code that we don't understand what they do. We're not going to make the problem better by throwing more English words at it. That's, that's kind of how we got here to begin with. Okay? <laughs> All right. So, so I think probably the most important thing is to sort of watch how people use the symbols. And I, I would do that either just over their shoulder or through the CCL or actually just sort of instrument their PC. You need to know how many times the maintenance programmer is confused or has to look up a symbol. That, that's an important metric because if they're spending a lot, a lot of you know, big amount of time trying to figure out what your symbols were, you got too many dang symbols, right? Right. So it, I'm assuming you're doing TDD to make sure that the uh, – the thing does whatever you think it should do. Mm -hmm. um, but the point being is once you've nailed that part, then you have to understand what you've actually told it to do, which is symbol lookup. So 
Googling counts is looking up a symbol, diving down through an object stack using the debugger, um, just walking the code. It, it's not bad. Don't, don't get me wrong. It, it's per- perfectly logical. If you've ever been used a big uh, framework library, you should spend a lot of time walking those symbols, figuring out how they work together, the pattern, the architecture. All that stuff's awesome. But when you're solving a problem as a maintenance programmer, you need to take that hit up front so you don't do it again. And if you're doing it a lot, it probably shows that your structure, your architecture is such that the maintenance program can't figure out what's going on. Right. So, so my point being, unless there's a feedback loop that you can measure to show, hey, we made things too complex, everybody's going to nod their head and say, oh, we got it, and they're not going to have it. And this is sort of the problem, like I said, with the computer instruction, is unless you're forcing yourself to define it at the point of the code together, it's always going to mean something different to everybody. Now, I'm, I, that might be a happy yeah. <laughs> answer for you, but I mean, that's just the way it is. Right. And so the reason you reduce the number of symbols is because those symbols, all those symbols hold risk. Right. And when you're talking about a symbol, again, I just want to clarify, yeah. are you talking about like a variable name or a method name or? Any, any chunk of words I'm looking at on the screen that, that I have to resolve. Think of the person who's maintaining the code as being the compiler, because that's really what you do. When you go into a method or a class and you're looking to do some maintenance, regardless of how well the quality is or whether it's tested, you're looking at the symbols, little chunks of words on the screen. And you're trying to resolve that inside your head to what you think that it was there for. Now, you're really lucky if you've only got one method and the guy says, you know, instead of a 20, returning 20 characters off the first name, please return 25 characters. You're really lucky you can do that. But the reason you can do that is you've got a really small method and the number of symbols you're manipulating is very small. And those things are measurable. And whether you had to look it up, it's measurable or not. So you have to, um, you have to limit your scope. There's just no other way around it. So yeah, it's every chunk. Of, the, the thing, the, the, look, the way to look at variable naming is, is it really, it's the pro, original programmer trying to create a bunch of method names and variable names such that the maintainer can understand enough of what it does that they don't make it do something wrong. And that's such a dangerous sort of path to head down. You have to be very careful about what you do. And I tell you, we see this a lot in, um, oddly enough, of libraries and, and frameworks, whether it's Rails or something you pull down from the web, You'll have, oh, you have some sort of object system you can call into to use it to do whatever you're doing. And the objects have English names. And okay, I just need to do this, uh, you know, web page refresh or whatever. And so you call the object method, and then the, it doesn't do exactly what you thought it would do. Like maybe it's using uh-huh. a promise on the front end, or maybe there, there could be a lot of different things that just, it looked like it said one thing and it does something else. And it's a lot of that's because that when we code frameworks and libraries, we do the happy path so much. That's true. Uh, I found that, yeah, a lot of the focus goes into the happy path. And so that's, yeah, that's where we end up. Yeah, so it's not just uh, in our code. It's also in the code we get from other people. I I, I hate to to say that I've gotten more into functional programming over the years, but dang, I sure have. (laughs) Why do you hate to say that? I mean, it has its benefits. I mean, I I hate to say it because it makes me sound like a noob that just tried something like last week and now I want to use it for everything. Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's a lot of that going around. People keep discovering it and going, wow. And then they get way into it and they're like, oh, okay. It it does have some drawbacks. (laughs) It, uh, yeah, it drove drove me crazy uh, the first few months because it was just a different way of solving problems. And I, I told one of my friends, it's like having to carry a linker around in my head all the time because in OO, this is the naming thing. In OO, I had, you know, noun dot verb, 
they at least I thought did what it wanted to do. But in functional programming, I'm responsible for everything. I got the data coming in. I got the structure of the data. I know exactly what the code does. That actually reduces your symbol load tremendously. Yes, that is true. Yeah, it forces you to just give it what you care about. Yes. Yeah, it does. So you, make you, you don't have yeah you don't have a big pile of oh well to use the customer you know customer account again right it it does you know it doesn't have all of the extra stuff because you don't care about that you just care that it has a name and a this and a that and it just does what it does when you pass it in. I've worked at more than one company that had sort of a pre-canned way of doing objects um, on a bunch of different companies. And, uh, you know, the old abstract concrete classes, the serialization, there's all these sort of categories of things you might want your objects to do or look like. And it's just far too easy to sort of not realize what you're doing to the maintenance programmer when you decide you want to add just this one word on the end of your class, you know, you know implements, blah, 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 two words, you know, hey, we're done or whatever. Um, so it's quite, quite easy for the, the guy poking at the keyboard the first at the front end, and he can make it quite difficult for the guy at the back end. And not only that, but, you know, a lot of times if you overload all these classes with things you don't need later on by making these sort of blanket decisions, uh, think about the, the amount of lines of code that you're putting on everybody else downstream to have to implement all these methods and stuff that may never, ever be used. That's true, too. It's, it's interesting you're talking about this. It kind of reminds me of the enumerable class or module in Ruby, you know, and essentially, yeah, you, you include it and it adds all these extra functions and it makes it so you can iterate over the collection that's represented by your object, right? But the flip side is, is that, yeah, you know, you've added all this functionality and what you really probably wanted was each and maybe like one or two of the other functions. I, uh, I have a bit of a confession here. I, I used to do C++ programming. That, that's not the confession, but uh, when I did <laughs> C++ programming, uh, one of the things I learned how to do was to make my types into full types. And if you're a C++ guy, you know what that means and other folks might not. So that means having a copy constructor and having all this other stuff that once you develop actually makes it a bare metal type just like string or integer. And you can use it just like you would use it anywhere else. And I used to really like going back in and implementing all those sort of standardized framework uh, interfaces, the enum, all that stuff, because it, I don't know, just kind of made me happy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why, Chuck. Um, yeah. But I never used any of that stuff. That's funny. Yeah. Well, and if I had, Lord knows where the bugs would have been at, because I, I was just doing it because I felt like I should do it. Well, and that's one thing that I think is interesting, too, is sometimes the issues are in the code that you know you needed, and sometimes the issues come in in the code that you put in that you thought you needed, you know, and then it never gets called. And then something changes in the app and something starts to call it. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, this code's been in here for six months, yeah. right? And it's never had a problem. So what's the, you know, and it turns out, yeah, well, nobody else was touching it. And so the bug never manifested. Yeah. And that not only is that true, but, you have to realize that, you know, OO systems don't grow a method at a time. They grow like a snowball, right? Yes. Yeah, so you, you just don't add a method on this class here and a method over there. It's like, I want all these methods, bam, I want all this, bam, you know? And so even if it's a very small addition, maybe once every two or three weeks, do that for a year. See what you got. You mm -hmm. got a mess. Um, so it's very, very easy to sort of think that you need stuff, code the stuff, not have it tested, like you said, have it be called by somebody else, and then make crap out on you. Yeah. Well, and sometimes those bugs are, it was poorly written. And sometimes those bugs are, 
I assumed that, you know, serialization, for example, right? I assumed that serialization would occur in this way under these circumstances. And now, you know, six months down the road, we've, we've changed our serialization schema and we're thinking about it in a different way. And so the bug is, well, I saw serialize on there and I assumed it would do what I wanted, you know, back to naming and back yeah. to the yeah, assumptions the that we're making, exactly. and meaning different things. And yeah, and then you're, you're stuck because it's like, well, darn. <laughs> you <know? laughs> well, you've got to ask yourself, you know, are you better? Well, I, I keep using the word symbol to represent both methods and, right. and uh, objects yeah. and whatever. Um, are you better off looking at a, you know, say, four line piece of code that has 20 symbols, fixing it, making it do what it's broken, you fix it, whatever? Uh, or are you better off maybe looking at a one line piece of code that represents a thousand symbols? Changing like the, you know, dot true to dot false at the end of some method somewhere. And it looks okay to me, right? So <laughs> which, yeah. which of those are a better scenario, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, and I've had those magic one-liners, right? It's got yeah. like, it, it, it's not just symbol, but it's symbol density, right? And yeah. so it's, it's, got, it's got 15 symbols in it. 15 <laughs> symbols really isn't that hard for my brain to parse. <laughs> right, sure. Except that you've got 15 symbols in 18 characters. And now my brain's got to go... <laughs> Whoa, right? And the comment oh my God, says, we got this off Stack Overflow. This is this is the job it does. Don't touch it. Oh, okay. You have to have done this, right? So you've got some object oh, dot method. Never. It's got, I've never done it. Uh, you've done it. I know you've done it. It's got like four parameters. You know, it's like uh, save, and it's got a save type disk or whatever. Yeah. And so you're down like with the third parameter. You're like, I don't know what to So you hit the hit the period button and intelligence pops up all the different. So it's like, you're playing like roulette here. Okay. I think uh-huh. I'll take the third thing, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> and then when it runs, like, holy, holy, it runs. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, and then you run into the other issue too. And this is something I've seen more in Elixir is that um, the method that's called or the function that's called is by uh, function signature, right? So it's, if you call a function that has two arguments, it's a different function than the function that takes three arguments, even if they have the same name, right? Oh, my God. And so, you know, because it does this pattern matching and all this magic and, you know, and so you, you wind up, oh, well, you know, oh, I thought it was calling this one instead of that one. Or you, you have two classes that are named things that are kind of the same. Yes. And <laughs> anyway. Yeah, like, a, is, it, is, it, is it reconcile account, balance account? They both look like they might work, right? I, yeah. Well, and, and, and that's... And my brain just takes the shortcut, you know, making the assumption that, you know, it says what I assume it's going to do. And so I assume that it does what it says. Yeah. And, and maybe nine times out of 10, you got it. So yeah, you, you one time out of 10, you screw it up. And I think the scarier thing is that you can actually pick the thing that probably closest matches what you want, have it pass the test you want, but have some sort of downstream effects from it that you're not aware of, still yeah. screw up your system. Yeah, that Like that you said with transactions, right? You could pick maybe pick a transaction type that works for you, but th- that type of transaction is distributed, it puts a lock on three databases, and suddenly you've got your test passing and you've hosted up everybody else. So I think that probably to some degree, the more descriptive your symbols are, probably the worse off you are because it gives the programmer sort of, some sort of false reassurance that they know what they're doing. Yeah. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating throwing out, you know, all the modern programming, but I do think that when people screw up like you and I have been talking about, they usually don't go back to the architect or whoever to help put this thing together and say, God, this stuff is fucked, man. Because I, I thought it was this, it's something else. 
that that feedback never happens. Yeah. And so in the next two weeks rolls around, they add a new method because it's just a cool thing they saw, you know, whatever uh, on dice or slash dot or whatever. Then the next two weeks, another one. And so without a feedback loop, there's no way for that system to actually get more understandable with less risk. I will say though that uh, I have been, I have worked on systems that had very terse names that, you know, the, the, and that worked really, really well. And everybody, un- basically understood what was going on. And the reason was, was that the terms that we were using in our code were the terms we were using when we were talking about the code. Right, right. And so what, right. what would happen is, is that I would say, oh, well, you know, I moved the user account over to the blah, 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 and this, and, you know, and it connected this, and, and I, I hooked this other thing up, and everybody understood because they used the same terms to mean the same things. And so if you have it's a common we, vocabulary, it's, it's yeah. a different discussion. And so when we talk about you know, good naming and bad naming, it's the socialization of the programmers. There's nothing, I'm not, you know, there's nothing wrong with a terse or very wordy. Like I told you earlier, when I'm going into a function first time through, I put a bunch of words next to what I'm doing so I can remember what I'm doing. Um, but if you don't have that socialization, if it's more than one person, then how would you ever know what to name the variable so you would remember it? And if you don't compare notes, then there's going to be some poor guy in Peoria, Illinois, three months from now that looks at this and he's hitting the dot trying to find the right method again. And we, we failed that guy. Well, and, and that's really what it boils down to, right? Is we're not talking about this just to sound smart. We're talking about this because at the end of the day, it's going to cost somebody some time or some money, right? So the, yes. it, it might you know, like you said, you put locks on the database or something, right? And it, it hoses everybody else. Well, now you've got to go and you've got to actually unwind that. And you're not making money because your customers aren't getting what they want. And, you know, and so it costs money. Or, you know, it's things aren't named well in this certain part of the code. And so whoever draws the short straw and winds up working on that code, it takes them four lo- times longer than it should, which costs, you know, a certain amount in salary, a certain amount in time, a certain amount in frustration. Um, you know, maybe that person's like, I always draw the short straw. I'm out of here. And, you know, and so it, it really has real world effects. It's not just this theoretical thing where it's like, oh yeah, you know, another thing I got to get right. Oh my God, no, it's not a, it's not a rules-based thing at all. There's, there's nothing here. I know it sounds kind of fluffy, but there's nothing here that's not meant to like write better code so like your life is easier. Yeah, you know, I look at the uh, the WhatsApp team. The WhatsApp team, I think they had fifty or sixty developers, and they had uh, a couple hundred million users. They sold for several billion dollars. Fifty developers. Okay, so there's obviously some way to write software that doesn't take you know hordes of developers and millions of lines of code. And so we need to start talking about okay, what are those ways? Because we don't want to be in this sort of never-ending voyage that just keeps getting worse and worse. And right. even, the thing is, even if the code runs, I think especially if the code runs, um, if it's, the base gets bigger and bigger and harder and harder to look up those symbols and maintain, well, you know, so, so now you're taking, like you said, every maintenance guy now takes a week to do something instead of a day. Yeah, that's technical right. debt, by the way. Yeah. Well, technical debt is any time that the, what you're looking at doesn't match up with what the model, what you should be, what the model in your head is. I like that definition a lot, actually. Because, yeah, essentially, yeah, that's what it boils down to. For, for me, I tend to think of it as anything that slows down development. Right. And so if there's something in the code that's making it harder for you to do your job, then it's technical debt, right? So not having tests, and then we wind up having 
maintenance issues that are harder to find, that's technical debt, right? You could have found it faster with tests, right? You wouldn't even have the problem with tests, you know? And so, yeah, you know, down to those things and those efficiencies is I'm paying this over and over and over again. I'm paying interest on my debt. And if I fixed, you know, if I paid off the debt, then I would, you know, not have the problem. In a big way, what we're talking about with this naming discussion and TDD, to sort of draw back what you were saying, is TDD exists so that I verify what the code does before I write the code. But there's a hole in TDD, which is the downstream thing we just talked about. I can verify the code does what I expect it to do in the context I'm looking at it, because that's where I'm writing the test. But if it resolves out to 100 other things that I'm not tracking in my brain right now, I don't really have any idea what I'm doing, except for the fact that I'm returning back the variable I wanted. And so that's technical debt. That's a huge overhead. You know, I, my joke is a lot of these maintenance jobs end up being sort of a Scooby-Doo episode. And so you, you show up and, and the guy's like, you need to make this report actually, you know, print in all three regions. You're like, well, what's a region? What's a report? Well, just go ask Fred or Joe. And so you get the kid and you get the kids in the little van, you're driving around asking people different questions. And it turns out usually it's the guy who gave you the job to begin with who knew all the answers, but he was just sitting sort of this wild goose chase to get. But we do that to people and it, it may be fun the first time or two, but God, he wants to work like that. Yep. Well, and then you pull the mask off and it turns out that it, yeah. Like you said, it's the, it's the guy who said it's John. the same guy. <laughs> well, and sometimes I found that that guy sent you on the wild goose chase, not because he didn't want to answer your questions. He just didn't realize that he had the information you needed. Which is back to naming and cognitive load yeah. for symbols. I, I hate to, to confess to being an idiot, but I'm an idiot. I can write code, understand what it does, come back the next day or maybe even after lunch and have no freaking idea what I'm looking at. And, you know, I'm not especially stupid. So, I mean, I know it can't be just me. So if I can do that, think of that, the VP of the director who wrote this code three years ago, it's really more of a fairy tale or a myth, his idea of what the code does versus what it actually does. And what usually happens is there's some little part of the code that becomes a problem. Everybody talks, everybody talks about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so you get this sort of community understanding of how this thing happens. They're all worried about broken over and over again. And that's fairly well defined. But then you wander off the field just just a little bit and you're in the weeds. Nobody really remembers what happens there. Yeah, absolutely. Fun stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely not about a theory, but I think I think the cool thing, Chuck, is that you can actually do budgets and, and read the complexity level and then manage how much risk you're taking as you go along. So one of the thing, points I'm making with the CC on code budget thing is that you can manage your, your symbol risk and your risk of downstream effects separately than you write good code or anything else you, you may want to do with your programming. And you should. Yeah, that makes sense, right? So the number of uh, symbols that you're using in a particular method or something, yeah, then I only have to keep track of what these three or four things are. Yes. Right. Yeah, if you get it. So it's a number. You don't even have to know what the, the number is 100, and you guys are happy with 100, fine. And you get a 300 line, you know, 300 number for a method. Okay, well, what, what are we doing here that we don't know we're doing? And then you can start, start figuring out where you think a symbol means something it doesn't. One of the other things that happens a lot, and I, you probably know this too, is that you, you'll call a method that calls a couple other methods, mm-hmm. ends up throwing an exception somewhere that's not caught. Yeah. And from three or four levels up, you just think you're doing something like you know, a reset screen or something like that. But it turns out what you're actually doing is well, this other thing nobody ever thought of. And you suddenly you've got an exception in your code for doing nothing you ever thought and would ever cause anybody any harm. Right. And that's the type of thing you really need to be aware of. I mean, that that that, that the, the CCL risk is not just 
server foofy, it's pretty dangerous stuff. Absolutely. We, we can start talking about floating point numbers and how many different ways they can be screwed up because, you know, this, this is not, this is not like sort of abstract. There's like a bazillion different things we use every day that has always little edge cases that most people are not aware of. So yeah, I wish I had some easy answer for it. I wish there was like some, you know, four step system for getting the perfect variable name. Um, I guess if you're Mr. Spock, you can have, you know, whatever variable names you want. Hell, your brain works like a computer, right? Uh, whereas if you're Bozo the Clown, maybe you should only have two or three variables. And they should be very long so you can figure out what they are. I think the danger is that we, most of us tend to think we're more like Mr. Spock than we are Bozo the Clown. And most of us actually happen to be more like Bozo the Clown, really. Yeah. Well, we're kind of getting toward the end of our time. Is there anything else that you want to just nail down and make sure people have in their pocket when they walk away from this? I guess really the, the thing I'm getting to here is there's intersection where people work with the computer, right? So you come in as a human being, the computer is, is mathematically driven, uh, it works on symbols, and, and it's a von Neumann machine, and logic, and it's consistent, and it has all these properties that you know. Uh, humans have all these properties we know about. What, when you mix humans with computers, there's this thing that happens. We like to think about programming as just being the thing on the computer. But as we talked about with the naming, there's this interaction between us and the computer that we really need to sort of be better at than we currently are. And that's kind of what a book's about. It's um, using the computer to make you a better thinker and then using the way people communicate to write your code better. Cool stuff. I don't think anybody else is doing it. Maybe they are. And um, you know, one of the things that do is uh, incremental strong typing. There's all these things like microservices, uh, writing apps with 100, 200 lines of code, no more. Uh, strong typing across microservices. There's all this tremendous amount of stuff that sort of falls out of this sort of initial um, yeah. dyad triad discussion. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into it with you then. Fun right. stuff, dude. Buckle yeah. up. <laughs> Heck yeah. Um, now, we mentioned this book that you're working on. Uh, do you have any idea when when it's going to come out so people can get um, organized, read out on this? Yeah, I probably 80% through the rough draft. I don't know if I'll rewrite or not. So probably a month for finishing the rough draft and then a month or so, mid, mid-summer or so maybe. Sounds good. Yeah, it's mostly all done. I have, um, at the end, I want to do some stuff about learning using reverse TDD, where you actually use TDD to sort of help yourself learn better. Uh, and a couple other things. I want to do TLA plus, and I'd like to do a CSP. A couple things I want to hit uh, that I haven't written yet, but let's 80% done already. Good deal. I'm, I'm sure I'll keep bringing you back on. So uh, when it's out, we'll let people know. Awesome, possum. If people have questions or they, you know, they're like, you know, I had this other thing that didn't get asked. Uh, can people like tweet at you or what, what's the best way to do that? Yep, you can email daniel at danielbmarkham.com or you can uh, tweet at me at danielbmarkham. Uh, it's a B as in boy. But either way, I'll, I'll respond. You may get a good answer, bad answer. <laughs> no, no, I, uh, I love helping people. So um, you don't you didn't get an answer you wanted or if you have a problem that you're kind of hung up on, especially when it involves class hierarchies, um, hit me up. Ha- happy to help. Sounds good. All right. Well, I think we just about covered it. So uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Cool. All right. Well, max out, everybody. Yeah. Later, dudes. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.